Summer Special in August 2021. Summertime and the listening is easy. Let's dive into summer fun with some beach time and sea bathing and then picnics and summer food, Tudor style. So kick back, get some sun, and enjoy a journey to summer's past. thrilled to share the first part of my conversation with Brigitte Webster, the talented and generous owner, along with husband Tom, of Tudor and 17th century experience. Brigitte will be sharing her insight about Tudor living and feasting in the summer. I'm including links to Brigitte's website in the show notes so you can check out all her wonderful offerings. And now, here's part one of our conversation. Thank you, Brigida, for being here. This is a real treat. And I'll just share with people that you and I met in a really fun way with Professor Susanna Lipscomb on a tour exploring whether, and the answer was yes, but whether or not Henry VIII became a tyrant over his life. And so we spent a week together touring these wonderful Tudor sites, and that's how we got to know each other. And it's been just such a wonderful friendship. I've been able to see you in a, in your previous home and then also here in the U.S. So um, that's been a real treat for me, and it's a real treat for us to have you here. So... I'm going to just start the ball rolling, just asking first, before we get into all of the ins and outs of Tudor summers and cooking and kitchens and all of that that you know so much about, can you tell us your journey that got you to Old Hall so that now you're the owner of this marvelous property and you have people coming to stay? How did you get there? What's your journey? (laughs) Yes, it was rather an unusual one and not planned, as many people think. Uh, We had no intention of moving anywhere. But one day, uh, a picture of Old Hall appeared on my husband's computer screen. And he just asked me and said, take a look at this. This is our dream home. And I remember saying, yeah, oh, it's fantastic. But why would you want to look at it? We are not wasting anybody's time. Well, unknown to me, he made an appointment to see it because he was driven to see it. And so we came up here. And uh, the minute we stepped inside, we knew that was going to be our next home. And on the journey back, to Hertfordshire, our previous home, um, we knew this was it. We would put the other home on the market and yeah, the rest is history. (laughs) Has anything 
surprised you about living in Old Hall? Um, no, not really, because uh, living in a building of this age has always been a dream of mine. And because I am so interested in what life was like in Tudor England, um, I was very familiar with the theory behind it. I knew that winters would be very cold without uh, central heating. It's cold. Uh, I knew it would be very drafty. Windows weren't double glazed or triple glazed. You know, if you were lucky, you had just glazing in first place. Um, I knew that um, the rooms would be very tall and therefore probably warmer at the ceiling and your toes will be cold um, and that there will be a lot of dust because if you have open fires, now that's very romantic, but it does actually create a lot of dust. And an old building like this one moves. You can hear sounds all the time, more so in the winter than in the summer. Uh, it's because it was meant to move with the climate changes. So when it gets cold, the wood uh, shrinks. When it warms up, it expands. And the wood, together with the glass and the lead frame supporting the glass, gives off sounds because it expands, it, it shrinks. Um, the wooden stairs creak. Um, yes, so some people would, if they didn't know what causes uh, those sounds, would probably get a bit frightened. But I find it fascinating. I absolutely adore how this house is talking to me. <laughs> um, but otherwise, no, there are no surprises uh, we even when we purchased the home, we didn't even get a surveyor in because we looked at it. We knew what we were seeing. Uh, we knew that there are, you know, issues that uh, some we saw, some we didn't see, but we knew what was going to come towards us. And we thought, yeah, we're ready. We are the right people to do this. <laughs> Well, you absolutely are the right people to do this, and that's wonderful. So would you say it was always your dream? You talk about the home is sort of a dream come true, to be able to share a Tudor and 17th century experience with people. Was that what you've always wanted to do? Um, I have always been very passionate about history, and you know that I am a trained teacher. Uh, and because I've trained in Austria, where I was born and grew up, I am qualified to teach not just history, but also other subjects. And those subjects um, were quite wide ranged, like cookery and sewing and embroidery and childcare and German because that's the way how we train uh, teachers in Austria. We, we are a bit more multi-talented. <laughs> um, 
And at the time when I graduated, I often did wonder, well, why have I chosen all these subjects? You know, they don't make sense. You know, a school is going to employ me for doing academic subjects or practical subjects, but they'll never, ever <laughs> combine the two. But I think this is where my journey started, that I did choose this rather unusual selection of subjects I wanted to teach. Because now, teaching about Tudor history, I need every single one of them. I can tell people about early embroidery. I'm as confident in the kitchen as I am talking about childcare, looking after the elderly. You name it, I know it. Uh, so my journey started long before I knew that this was going to be my vacation. And uh, when I arrived here in England oh, 32 years ago, um, all the schools only ever employed me for teaching German because to them it made sense. She's a German native speaker. She can teach German. And uh, I did it for 25 years, but there always was this wish, this dream to teach history. And about 20 years ago, I started to learn skills myself, like upholstery, furniture restoration. And it was a long journey, but that's when my deep interest in Tudor history started, because I was fortunate enough to pick up some early chairs in auction that needed restoration. And uh, the Tudor in in my furniture restoration class, didn't really know how to go about it because he said to me, frankly, you know, this is a chair that's so old, I don't really know. You need to go and investigate that yourself. So I did. Anyway, so I started to learn about also furniture, to the furniture, what it needed, what it looked like, how it was made. Um, and pretty much... Soon into this, I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to share my journey, my experience with other people? Uh, because I had this urge to tell other people. I felt, you know, not enough people know about it. And it's so fascinating. It's so interesting. And, uh, yeah, so I started to invite friends of mine to come and stay with me as the house grew older, faster than I did. Um, and we had more and more Tudor and uh, 17th century furniture. And it was one friend in particular who said to me, you know, this is amazing. You, you know, why do you not open this up as a sort of business you know this this is fantastic you know you bringing history alive you the teacher the knowledge you've gained and I, I am I feel like I've been put back two three four hundred years ago and that's how I th thought well hey hmm, maybe <laughs> and then slowly started there but it took a long time and obviously, you need to have your family on board, in particular, your husband. My children by then were leaving to 
uh, go their own ways. But I had to have Tom on board because, I mean, who? <laughs> not that it's not everybody <laughs> a cup of tea to open your home to strangers right. who might want to stay with you and take you through histories, share the same dining table, mm-hmm. uh, sit in your uh, lounge because it's not like a hotel. That's very. That was always very important to me. I did not want to become a hotel. I did not want to become a bed and breakfast. I wanted people to come and stay with me as a personal guest and experience history as a friend rather than a hotel guest. And therefore, it was important that I was comfortable and happy to share my home with strangers. And this is why it's only open to history fans. (laughs) Well, and that's wonderful. And I was so lucky in your old home, I haven't visited Old Hall yet, but in your previous home, to get to share some time with you and Tom and watch you in action and learn about the furniture and the cooking. And it was, it was just wonderful. And it does, it, you just are immersed in another time, mm-hmm. which is fabulous. So let's talk a little bit about that other time. And what would you say, are there things that um, would be different in the summer. You know, we're quite warm here in the U.S. and I know in the U.K. you've been quite warm as well. What was life like for the tutors in the summer? Were there particular foods or particular activities that you can share with us? Right. Now, It's amazing. Living in a Tudor home, you actually experience very much what it would have been like to the people 500 years ago. And the one factor that still is so important is the weather. Now, England is not known for its stable weather. And it can change within a day. It can become exceptionally hot. Uh, We can experience droughts like in 1540, 1541. Um, England experienced intense droughts. And that year in particular, um, there are records that um, cherries were ready to be harvested at the end of May. Now, that is quite, quite early, and I've never had that here. Um, And grapes were uh, ready in July. It just shows how hot it was that year. And like, and we had a similar year last year. It was exceptionally hot, um, no rain for weeks on end, and then followed by a year of floods, rain, cold weather, stormy conditions like this year. And when you look at the Tudor age from 15 to about 1600, it repeats itself over and over again. And it makes you understand why people appreciate it so much when the weather was a bit more moderate, because everything depended on that, how much food you would have to feed your family over the winter or until next year, depended 
on the weather. And like then, now, there's little we can do. Okay, today I get the hose pipe out <laughs> when the plants need the watering. But um, it is it, it really tells you how much they must have appreciated when they had a moderate summer. That means the, the right balance of rain and sunshine at the right time. Because uh, obviously in, in summer, the most important one was the harvest of cereals. And that was mostly July, August, sometimes into early September. But that time was crucial, that it was absolutely dry. Um, and it makes you understand why they have this harvest festival at the end. And with the 1st of August uh, being Lammas Day. Now, Lammas Day, you might not have heard of that, but it was a big day in Tudor England. Lammas Day is the 1st of August. And the term Lammas goes, harks back to Anglo-Saxon and means loaf day. Because even in Anglo-Saxon time, you know, harvesting your wheat or your rye or your barley was so important. And with the first reap of harvested grain, they baked a bread called the Lammas bread. And that was then taken to church to be blessed and given to the community that came to church. Um, and it was really to, to play, to, to give thanks, a little bit like Thanksgiving in America, giving thanks to God for his mercy to send good weather at the right time and rain at the right time so they can harvest the grains in dry weather and store it in dry weather because it could be totally damaged and ruined if on the day of your harvest it rains. Um, and it's nice that I've, I've done a bit of research into this, what a manor house would have done at that time. And it's it was nice for me to find out that the manor would then have a little bonfire or sometimes bigger bonfires going during harvest time where people came to gather afterwards uh, and they gave food and drinks. So it was merrymaking. It was making good of all the bad, bringing people together, uh, making friends of who might have been an enemy before. But uh, August was the time of hard work uh, because the long day people went out to work to harvest all the cereals and all the other vegetables like uh, peas and beans. They were both field crop and not uh, planted in the garden. Um, and to, to basically know that the harvest was safe for the whole year to come. And so I might do the same this year, that uh, when our farmers will do the harvest, that I possibly, if I can, with COVID, 
That's always the big problem now, isn't it? Right. Uh, invite the farming community uh, for a harvest supper and do what people here in this house did 500 years ago and um, serve goose, uh, bread, cheese and a good drink. And Thomas Tusser, he actually advises uh, in his advisory books that you should make sure that every labourer who helps to bring in the harvest has to be looked after. They have to be given gloves to protect their hands. And he further goes on and says, make sure that everyone who worked uh, goes home with some good meat and good drink. So it was important to look after the people who helped you bring in the harvest. Uh, because we know, you know, if you don't look after your <laughs> the people who work for you, you might lose them. And you don't want to do that during harvest time. You want them to do their best and come back next year. Well, that's wonderful to think about. So August is a time of gathering. So people might come, imagine it's 500 years ago, people might come to work in the old hall area, right? And help bring in the crops and then participate in those celebrations. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and um, it, it was something that people seemed to have enjoyed because it brought the people at the top, the people who lived in the manor house, to sit together on the same table or around the same bonfire as the people in the lower class. And I think that was very important. Uh, and it's possibly something we are more missing out these days. Uh, but it shows that people were also happy with their position because everybody came together. People on in the lower class knew that they could rely on the people in the upper class to care for them, to look after their needs and appreciated their part in the community. That's, that's great. And that really does sound like a wonderful way to bring the community together. And there's a lot of power in breaking bread together and sharing a meal around the same space, around the same table. So can you give us an idea uh, of what might be served? You know, I would imagine that the laborers might get a chance in one of these harvest meals to have some food they didn't normally have. Is that right? Yeah, it probably would have been meat. Meat in Tudor times was very much um, regarded as uh the food of the rich, but it was also the food that they were happy to share for special occasions. There was only one meat that was definitely only for the upper class, and that was uh, game, wild game, venison, and so on. But beef, for instance, beef played a major role. And we know that the, the Chamberlains who lived in this house definitely were very much uh, lovers of beef because you find that in all of their last wills, 
there is at least one or two sentences that specify that the people who attended the funeral had to be given boiled and roast beef, uh, that the servants uh, should be given uh, beef weekly for a year up to until uh, from from the time of the funeral uh, and drink so beef definitely felt but um the, the the one thing that is very significant for tudor england is that we see a development for eating outside oh now, before okay. yes before there's very little evidence that people deliberately took their food outside to eat in the garden or picnics. And um, that is quite significant because during the 16th century, we see more and more evidence that people did that. We, for instance, know of some pictures that show in particular Elizabeth I out on a hunt, and clearly what is an outdoor feasting event. And the one that's so dear to me is the banqueting. People started to build special outdoor houses around their garden called banqueting houses. And so feasts were sometimes taken outside and the guests would then walk through the garden and enjoy the wealth of uh, colours provided by the flowers, the fresh air, the nice landscaped gardens. And by the end of this tour around the garden, they would finally arrive at the banqueting house, which was often huge, depending on the wealth of your host. And that's where you got the finest of food served. And in Tudor England, that's all about sugar and fruit. Okay, so tell us more about that. I know you've done some wonderful things with banqueting. So tell us about that. It's it's a bit of my own private passion. Um, It's all got something to do with the fact that the Tudor's attitude to healthy eating changed, that combined with cheaper sugar coming in from the Americas and the Caribbean. Now, the two together caused this development of sweet food made from fresh fruit. So we are talking about marmalades. Now, a Tudor marmalade is not how we see it today. It was more like a fruit leather. Um, it's something you pick up. It's it's basically just made from fruit boiled with sugar, rose water, and some spices. Um, and then you can actually pick it up. It's not sticky at all. Uh, and it is lovely, very intensely fruity. And um, I actually prefer it to chocolate. But it's very labor intensive. And the interesting thing is that's the 
sort of thing that the lady of the house did. The lady of the house uh, would not have done any cookery. That was done by another woman, a servant. But to produce these sweet treats, that was for the lady of the house to do, because only she was trusted with the sugar. Sugar was still expensive, uh, but more affordable in comparison to 100 years previously. But um, they also discovered that sugar would preserve fruit. So for the first time, they could enjoy their strawberries, their cherries, their gooseberries, much, much longer. Before the introduction of sugar on the big scale, you could only enjoy them when nature provided them fresh. And that was restricted to the end of June to early September, if you were lucky. Summers like this one, you wouldn't have any cherries. I had a few strawberries and that's it. So, but sugar, sugar made it possible that you could enjoy these fruits all through the year. Well, we learned from Mary Poppins that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. But even earlier, the Tudors learned that many spoonfuls of sugar allowed them to enjoy fruit all year long. Many, many thanks to Brigitte for sharing all of this with us. And there's more. Join us next week for the rest of our conversation. You'll hear about Tudor picnics, why presentation was so important with Tudor food, and how tutors communicated messages with the food they served. I can't wait. Thank you for joining me for Summer Fun with Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. Hope you had a great time. I'm getting ready to launch Season 2 in September. Big news, great guests, and lots of fun with your favorite Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. Enjoy your August, stay safe, and let's keep shaking up history together. <music>